You're listening to Someone Like Me, the official podcast of In Slavery, Tennessee. We took a brief hiatus to collect more conversations and ready ourselves for a brand new season of this show, which will launch on March 12th in an online live event streaming on the End Slavery Tennessee Facebook page. This will be followed by our very first episode of the second season, releasing on March 26th. This episode you're listening to is a special bonus episode where we get to honor the legacy of the one who began the work of In Slavery Tennessee and whose voice you often heard in the first season of the show, Derry Smith. It was Derry and Gregory Byerline who came up with the idea for this podcast in 2019, and Gregory is joining me today as we take a look back at the history of In Slavery Tennessee from the perspective of its founder. Derry tells her own story and also how the plot developed into what we now know as Enslavery Tennessee. Here, she goes beyond soundbite answers and takes us on a grand journey. From Derry's personal trauma, to her dedication to serve the survivor community, to organizing strategically and intentionally as a faith-based organization, to the trauma-informed care staff and safe house currently in full operation. All contributing to Tennessee's ranking as the number one state in the nation for fighting trafficking of minors. The day this episode releases will actually be Derry's final day working for In Slavery Tennessee as she begins retirement. We honor Derry's work and legacy today and are grateful you've joined us in this special look back at the history of an organization that has facilitated the recovery of over a thousand human trafficking survivors. And who better to tell it than Derry herself? So here's Derry speaking alone from her home during quarantine, sharing her story. frequently ask me what prompted me to start End Slavery Tennessee and to tell about the early days. I generally give a soundbite answer, but in today's podcast, you'll get a fuller picture than most. I grew up in gang-infested neighborhoods of New York City and Philadelphia, where I was the only white girl in Black and Puerto Rican neighborhoods. My normal environment was shaped by the violence and intimidation of gang rivalries. In the 1960s, my daily path wove through the posters and speeches and tensions of neighborhoods either headed for or recovering from riots. These were places reeling from the proclamations and then the assassinations of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. In this incubator of chaos and insecurity, I gained some understanding of racial prejudice and the anger it fueled. And I saw firsthand how many of the young people around me were pawns for manipulation and victims of exploitation. As for me personally, I was abused from the age of 11 until I left home at 16 by my father a pastor, a trusted and admired man in the community. By high school and carrying into early college, I was a full-fledged hippie, dabbling in drugs and looking for love in all the wrong places. One kind man named Dub Orr 
took an interest in me and my dysfunctional family, and he arranged a scholarship for me at Abilene Christian College, now university. And there I met my husband, Bill, and the trajectory of my life changed. Without the interest of that one man, I could well have become a human trafficking victim myself. I was rife for exploitation. After my own long healing process, I was invited to speak about sex abuse in the church long before it became the public topic it is today. And women came out of the woodwork telling me, often for the very first time, about their own abuse. And I listened, and I cried with them, and I learned. In the mid-1980s, I led an inner-city ministry in Nashville's low-income Edge Hill neighborhood. I made friends with families from the subsidized housing project, and I learned so much from them. I launched a girls' club out of Carter Lawrence School. I yearned for solutions to the cycle of kids I saw who were born to 14-year-old mothers generation after generation. Living in that vulnerable and exploitive environment, these young people developed an unhealthy sense of victimhood and learned that the easiest way forward was to see what we can get from other people. That was understandable to me. It would have been easy with these girls, who seldom, if ever, left their neighborhoods, to put them in a van and drive them to a nice neighborhood and give them something to aspire to. I suppose that would have been a typical approach, but that wasn't what they needed. So instead of a bus to Nashville's posh Green Hills neighborhood, I led these girls onto an airplane, their first airplane ride, to an impoverished Mexican border town to see families living in cardboard boxes and to be the privileged people helping those less fortunate. These girls came home with a drive to be the cycle breaker in their own worlds, or at least in their own lives. I'm still in touch with some of those girls today, now in their 40s. Talk about feeling old. I have to laugh when I hear various versions of that trip to Mexico now retold like a legend too outlandish to believe, and yet it really happened. And just 20 years later, the thought of a nonprofit to care for local victims of human trafficking sounded so bizarre to many people. I guess I like to think outside the box. In 1986, a man named Ross Henshaw, someone I knew only by reputation, stepped off of a flight from his home in New Zealand and came directly to the home of our friends, Bob and Peggy Huey. There, a group gathered for a regular Bible study. We met every week. And soon after Ross entered the house and exchanged a few pleasant series with Bob and Peggy, he looked across the room directly at me locked eyes, waded through the people seated on the floor to get to me. And he bent down and speaking in a natural voice, not intending to draw attention or sound impressive, he said, God will use you to lead many women to freedom. Those words burned into me like a hot iron. 
I didn't have any idea what they meant. Was my current work with the Edgehill Girls where this would happen? In the late 80s and early 90s, Bill and I lived six years overseas helping refugees who streamed out of communist Eastern Europe. As we went, I thought maybe that's where this word would be fulfilled. We heard the stories of vulnerability and mistreatment, even among refugees who were former doctors and teachers but lost all social clout because they didn't conform to their countries of origin. A few years after the Berlin Wall fell, we returned to Nashville, now with two children of our own, and to be honest, I came home not feeling like I led many women to freedom. I still pondered what that meant. Fast forward to 2007, with our younger daughter nearly done with high school, I asked God, what's next? Then one day I read a book about child abuse in the church, a topic of interest to me, of course, and one of the chapters was on human trafficking. That chapter left me gutted. This was exploitation beyond my worst imaginings. From that point, I was determined to learn everything I could. I have what my Jewish relatives call chutzpah, So I started calling everyone around the country working to end human trafficking and heal survivors. That call list was very short. I visited agencies in other parts of the country, as well as those in related work with prostituted women or traumatized youth. I still didn't know what to do, but this issue was burning a hole in my gut. So one Sunday... I asked at my church if anyone would like to meet that week to talk about what we could possibly do. To my complete amazement, 85 people showed up. This was the first of an army of volunteers crossing church denominations, later joined by professional staff, who were looking for a way to make a difference in Middle Tennessee. And though we were still not even a formal organization, our mission was just what it is today, to promote healing of human trafficking survivors and strategically confront slavery in our state. At first, we were all volunteers. We worked out of my house and out of car trunks, and we often rented space at Starbucks. We had no money, no connections, no clout. I still remember being thrilled at our first donation of $100 from a woman who later became a board member. I used Beth Wright's gift to buy a display board to set up at various gatherings to spread the word about local human trafficking. And man, we had a lot of work to do because legislators and law enforcement alike told me that human trafficking did not happen in their districts. Initially, I served as the first state director for a national human trafficking organization, but the work just felt a mile wide and an inch deep. It seemed too much about raising funds and not enough about working deeply and effectively. Then I received a phone call from the president of the faith-based agency that Bill and I worked with in Europe. 
This organization has multinational teams serving vulnerable populations around the world, from garbage dump kids in the Philippines and refugees in Greece to child soldiers in Uganda. So, of course, they were encountering human trafficking. He admired the progress we were making in Tennessee, so the president brought me on board as their first director of End Slavery Ministries, charged with training, equipping, and strategizing with global teams to address the human trafficking they encountered. While establishing teams like End Slavery Uganda and End Slavery Cambodia, I was given freedom to foster End Slavery Tennessee as an outlet for my passion to serve my own community. But my heart was already full for the children and young people here in the Nashville area who were lured by traffickers and sold for sex. I could get help for a victim almost anywhere in the world, but right here in my own community, because we didn't think it happened here. Tony Higginbotham, a recently retired nonprofit executive, planted the seed that I really should create an organization that focuses just on where my heart was, victims and potential victims in Middle Tennessee. And so we started a faith-building journey, watching God amaze us and guide us continually and give us incredible favor. Initially, four people came along at just the right time. The first was Angela. We had an army of mostly young volunteers with lots of passion and very little money. If we had $50 to spend that was not out of our own pockets, that was a really big deal. Then Angela called, asking me to stop by. She told me that God woke her up in the night and made it clear she was supposed to give me something. Angela was not wealthy, but she had just received a modest windfall, and she handed me a check for $15,000. Next was Detective Matt Dixon with Nashville Metro Police, now Sergeant Dixon. He was weary of arresting the same 14-year-old girl over and over again without anything to offer her. Once I won his trust... And if you know anything about law enforcement, you know that took a long time. He became a strong advocate for our efforts, bringing with him the credibility of law enforcement. He even brought me in to train officers at the police academy, and he referred victims to us for help. Then there was Jamie Kassler, director of the Center for Social Justice at Trevecca Nazarene University who offered me office space and use of meeting spaces on campus. I had access to students in the social justice program to both teach and assign projects like creating our first resource list of agencies that provide services needed by human trafficking survivors. And then there was Rachel Pierce, the FBI victim specialist, who inspired us with her genuine compassion. Rachel brought survivors to us for care, taught us so much, and was instrumental in opening the door for my first opportunity to serve as a subject matter expert in a major national human trafficking trial. 
From there, things exploded. I said often to people in those days, we were building the plane as we flew it. I realized I couldn't answer calls to help victims here in Tennessee while trotting the globe for an international agency, so I resigned from the international post, and we formed a local board of directors and became a separate nonprofit organization with Tony's CPA wife, Susie Higginbotham, as board chair. In the fall of 2012, we hired our first case manager. We called them care coordinators, so it was less clinical sounding. And then we hired another And then we added a recovering survivor to serve as an intervention specialist, and we were off. By now, some legislators and law enforcement realized we did indeed have human trafficking here in Tennessee. I even had the chutzpah to go to Chrissy Haslam's office one day to talk to her about human trafficking and give her a book to read. I know everyone loves being handed a book to read, right? I didn't know until last year that she actually read it. I did know she became a strong advocate and educated her husband, Governor Bill Haslam, on the issue. An early gathering orchestrated by Governor Haslam, hosted by the Department of Health and Human Services and led by consultants, was charged with creating a statewide response to human trafficking. There were representatives from an alphabet soup of governmental agencies. And these people kept saying, we need what Derry is doing. We need those types of services for the victims we encounter. We aren't mandated or equipped to be a social services agency. And that is where the concept of nonprofits serving as single point of contact agencies was birthed. We became the place Detective Matt Dixon yearned for, a place to send victims for immediate care and long-term healing and recovery. So many volunteers and staff have linked arms to make the work of Enslavery Tennessee thrive. I remember and cherish the names and faces of each one, even though I can't list them all. And more importantly, God knows. So many volunteers have linked arms to make the work of End Slavery Tennessee thrive. In the next segment, Derry shares specific names of some of the people who helped along the way. They are Jana Carlson, Karen Karpinski, Bill Decker, who incidentally introduced me to Derry, and Emily Mahoney, who founded Branded Collective with Lauren Carpenter. And you'll hear their voices too as they tell their own part of the story. Jana Carlson ran our initial big fundraiser for years, a bike ride called the Ride for Refuge, joined by faithful volunteer Dana Montgomery. I have always had a heart for those at risk, specifically those trapped in the cycle of human trafficking and abuse, and I had been wanting to get involved in an organization that supported that cause for quite some time. I first found out about End Slavery through one of their volunteer groups, where I met Karen Karpinski, who was on staff at the time. I immediately fell in love with the organization, partly due to the passion that I saw from the people involved, and I wanted in. After many months of attending the volunteer groups and spending time learning about the organization, I was approached about leading an event called the Ride for Refuge. 
At the time, I didn't feel qualified or experienced enough to take on such a huge task, but I knew I was passionate about the cause, and so I accepted the position. I also did not own a bike at the time, which is fairly important when you're leading a bicycling event. (laughs) Derry and the entire end slavery team were incredibly supportive, and they were with me every step of the way to cheer on the success of this event. We held the ride for refuge for about five years before I stepped down as the leader for personal reasons and to allow the organization to flourish in the additional events that they were planning on adding in the near future. In Slavery is such an amazing organization. My husband and I will continue to support them as long as the Lord allows. The Ride for Refuge event will always hold a very special place in my heart, and the memories that were made there are such a blessing to me. Being able to raise awareness surrounding such an important topic that many people are not even aware of was certainly a privilege. It is an honor to call Derry and the other members of the End Slavery team my personal friends. The individuals they serve deserve every possible opportunity to flourish in life, and End Slavery provides those opportunities. I am humbled to be a part of such an incredible organization. My hope and prayer is that in slavery, Tennessee will continue to grow and thrive in the years to come. Dana recently died unexpectedly at age 49. She served for a decade, starting when I was working for that national organization. In one early training I did, a woman came up to me wanting to volunteer. I didn't think much of it. I didn't realize what a milestone that was because that woman was Karen Karpinski, who started by volunteering and became our first community educator. In the early spring of 2008, I was working for a large corporation, not very happily, and decided to take early retirement. But I quickly realized that I needed something to fill my time and my passion. Several months later, I met Derry Smith when she spoke to a group of seroptimists. As she talked about trafficking in your own backyard, I was horrified to realize that I knew so little about this crime. And with my lifelong thirst for social justice, I knew I had to learn more. Derry quickly became my mentor. I began to read everything that she suggested, and I began to do simple presentations on college campuses. I have a background in volunteer management, so Derry asked if I would be willing to work with her to develop a volunteer base and consider taking on more speaking opportunities. This would allow her more time to work on grants and to develop an executive board. This eight-year collaboration would prove to become the most rewarding work and the closest friendship I have ever experienced. Over the next couple of years, we spoke frequently by phone, and we met at our office, quote, Starbucks or Panera's, end quote, to plan and strategize. I remember the excitement of learning that we were going to have an actual office on the campus of Lipscomb University through a mutual program. That office was a very tiny space that Derry and all of our survival donations and materials could possibly hold. On the other hand, I was able to reserve meeting rooms to talk with potential volunteers or to schedule a conference room for volunteer trainings. We were happy to have that space, but we were quickly growing and we needed more. 
At about the same time, Derry had organized an executive board and had applied for and been granted our 501c3 charitable organization status, both of which were pretty big accomplishments for us. Finally, we moved into our own suite of offices in Metro Center. It was so exciting to occupy our own offices. We had our own conference room, even a break room. But most importantly, we had space available for victim service providers. With more grant money becoming available, Derry hired a team, and I became the official volunteer manager, working 20 hours per week. We were growing and learning and providing more and more education out to the community. I was speaking to pretty large organizations and groups, such as the Social Work Annual Conference, the Emergency Staff for Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, the Children's Services Referral Staff, the Tennessee Army Reserve Officers Annual Training, and many others. Children's Services of Middle Tennessee ask in slavery if we would help develop a training program for all staff who had direct contact with children. I was incredibly proud to be a part of this initial training. We also decided that we needed a broader training program for businesses and their staff. After doing much research, we developed a web-based training module for the hospitality and the beauty industries to help recognize, report, and possibly help rescue young women and girls in human trafficking. I am incredibly grateful to have been part of the In Slavery Tennessee development from its infancy to watching its influence grow throughout the state, the Southeast, and even across the United States. Working with Derry Smith, the staff and the survivors enriched my life more than I can possibly say. Thank you to the incredible Derry Smith in In Slavery Tennessee. Our early board were faith-filled people who caught the vision and ran with it. Bill Decker became our second board chair, and I love hearing him tell how God called him and what motivated him. I had the privilege and opportunity to serve as a member of the founding board for In Slavery Tennessee, and also as either vice chair or chair of the board during my time on the board. And I recall that how I got involved with In Slavery Tennessee, I had the chance to go to, on a trip to Israel with my church early one summer. And toward the end of that trip, I uh, we had the opportunity to spend an afternoon at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial and Museum there in Israel, in Jerusalem. And I recall going through that and just being inundated with how horrible this is. And also through that, the museum, how people knew what was going on and they didn't do anything. That when I walked out onto the portico back behind the museum, I remember clear as day, it's not like I heard a voice from heaven, but I also knew God was speaking to me. And my thought was, how in the world did people know this was going on and not do anything about it? And clear as day, the next thought I had was, well, you know about the human trafficking problem that Darius Smith is working on, and you're not doing anything about it. And call it conviction, call it clear messaging. I knew right then I decided 
you're right. I'm going to do something about that. When I get back home to Tennessee, I am going to write a check. And got on a plane, came home, and like so many good intentions that all of us have, promptly forgot to do anything about it. And a couple of months later, got a phone call at the office from Susie Higginbotham, who owned a local CPA practice, and we had some mutual clients. And Susie said, hey, Bill, I'd love to come talk to you about something. And so I thought it was probably client-related. And I said, well, you know, we're on the phone. Can we talk about it now? And she said, okay. She said, do you know Derry Smith? And I said, yeah. And she said, do you, you know what she does in the fight against human trafficking? So I do, I think. We all went to church together. And she said, well, I'm going to help her organize into a official organization and file the right paper and become a standalone charity. And I'd like to talk to you about maybe sitting on the founding board. And I remember saying to Susie, Susie, you don't know me that well. You don't know that I don't say things like this all the time, but I think God's already told me to do this. I remember Susie saying, well, this phone call went better than I expected. I'm going to get off the phone and make a few more dials. And that's how I became involved with Enslaver Tennessee. And another memory I have that I thought I'd share was of one of the initial meetings we had as a board when we were in the kind of the establishment process when we decided whether or not to identify as a faith-based organization. And it turns out while you're filing the paperwork to set up a charity, it's actually a box you check. Are you a faith-based organization or not? And absolutely every one of us there was there because of a sense of calling that was faith-related. A number of us went to church together, but we all certainly shared the background and the impetus from our Christian faith and that's what had brought us together. I actually recall that I was the skeptic in the group as to whether or not, though, we should check the faith-based box. And my feeling was financial-related a bit, that would that limit our ability to receive funding if we said we were a faith-based organization? And I remember someone else on the board making a good point that in some environments, in some places, that might be, but in Nashville, that probably wouldn't be. And so since we really were a faith-based organization, I recall Derry specifically saying that she had never seen a case of complete healing without the direct involvement of Jesus Christ in that process. And that did it for me. So we voted there, I believe it was at the Puffy Muffin in their conference room. That's where we officially determined to be a faith-based organization as we set up the group. Uh, I would say the time that I was on the board and super involved was an incredibly enlightening time, a time of feeling useful and a time of feeling just saddened, you know, ha happy to be working with that group and saddened that the work had to be done. I have some exciting memories of a couple of our, our first and or some of the first initial large sustaining gifts that were pretty exciting to see because we, we were on a thin budget, that's for sure. And we had a couple of gifts, one from the Memorial Foundation, a couple from some individuals that were just incredibly generous and incredibly well-timed. And I remember doing that work with the rest of the board, doing the work with Derry, going and visiting, visiting potential donors and making arrangements for as we started to expand the living situation where we provided a safe space for our survivors to heal and prosper. Uh, it was a fun time to be involved. Sadly, I had to step off of the board for 
health-related issues in my family and personal side, but uh, remain a excited supporter and fan of what the team at In Slavery, Tennessee is doing to this day. Two women from my home church were touched when they learned what I was doing, and they wanted to help. They are creative entrepreneurs, so they started a business to provide jobs and development of job skills for the survivors we serve. Hello there. This is Emily Mahoney, one of the co-founders of Social Enterprise Branded Collective. Branded Collective is a jewelry line. And each piece is handmade by a survivor of human trafficking, in particular, a young woman who's going through or has gone through and graduated from the In Slavery Tennessee program. We have been collaborating with In Slavery Tennessee since our beginning in 2012. We're about eight years old now. We have employed 27 survivors over the years. We have sold, oh gracious, over 70,000 pieces of jewelry. I believe we've grossed nearly a million dollars worth of jewelry sales, and those finances go back to purchasing raw materials, running the business, and most importantly, employing survivors of sex trafficking. It has been an extraordinary journey, one of the most rewarding journeys of my life, and I'll never forget a very important moment in the early, early days of Branded Collective. I remember meeting with Derry Smith for the first time at the, I believe it was the coffee shop at Trevecca Nazarene. Anyhow, Derry and I sat down and chatted, and I was so inspired by her vision for enslavery, by her heart for survivors. And originally, Branded Collective was simply going to be beautiful pieces of jewelry made by local artisans, and then we would give a percentage of our proceeds back to Enslavery Tennessee. And we have done that. But from that conversation with Derry, I realized she has such an extraordinary heart, not only for helping survivors of sex trafficking, not only helping them in their early stages of recovery, but I think what impressed me most and what has over the years impressed me about In Slavery Tennessee is that they have a long-term vision. They are interested in investing in a survivor's life for her whole life, not only those immediate trauma recoveries and medical needs and all of those immediate, maybe more obvious needs, but there's also a deep interest and a strong conversation at In Slavery, an investment into their survivors' futures, their desires to go to school or to be reunited with their children, their desires to get further education, to learn how to drive. Whatever it is, In Slavery is not just a place where these young women come to at the height of their trauma, but this is a place where they are encouraged to continue to grow and continue to be empowered into the future. And so from that conversation with Derry Smith, Lauren and I realized, oh, hang on, we don't want to just make beautiful jewelry and give the proceeds back to end slavery. What if the survivors made the jewelry? What if we became a safe work environment, an inspiring work environment where job skills and life skills can be learned? Everything from how to make a pair of earrings to how to open a bank account, et cetera, et cetera. So in brief, that is what Branded Collective does. And one of the only reasons we've been able to do it is because of the vision of the staff at In Slavery Tennessee and the huge heart that Derry Smith has for these young women and for the incredible, limitless futures that she knows that they can achieve. What an 
honor it has been to collaborate with In Slavery Tennessee over these years. These 13 years or so have seen a lot of changes. The conversation about human trafficking completely changed from, that doesn't happen here, to, oh my, I had no idea, to, teach us how to help. We moved from my house and Starbucks to a one-room office at Treveca to our current survivor care center, administrative offices, and safe house. From one or two staff to about 16, plus interns, many along the way. Several interns changed their career paths to work in this space, and one even opened her own version of End Slavery Tennessee in Arkansas a few years ago. Over 40 state laws were enacted to fight human trafficking and make it more likely that victims will get help. Those laws propelled Tennessee from a mediocre response to human trafficking, according to rankings by Shared Hope International, to the nation's number one state fighting trafficking of minors. One of the things I'm most satisfied with is the single point of contact, or SPOC model, established so that a network of specialized agencies stand ready to receive referrals and serve the complex needs of survivors. Tennessee's model is acclaimed across the country for its efficacy. It was built by developing trusting, collaborative relationships between three agencies— one in each grand division of the state, ensuring survivor care in the most beneficial and effective way possible in every county, and collaborative power to affect change in systems in the state that needed change. Each single point of contact has, in turn, through collaboration and trust, developed a network of service providers that work to meet all survivor needs. And in the process, Many barriers between nonprofits, government organizations, healthcare, and others have been bridged for a common cause. Margie Quinn, now End Slavery Tennessee CEO, was then at the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation and worked hard and effectively to bridge the law enforcement and nonprofit divide. It's now standard policy for the Tennessee Department of Children's Services to place trafficked youth on a separate track for services and to connect with the TASA, the Tennessee Anti-Slavery Alliance, the single point of contact agencies, for those services within 24 hours. We have a Memorandum of Understanding, an MOU, with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, TBI, as their nonprofit partners. I and others served or now serve as subject matter experts in court cases that set precedent, and so much more. Quite a change from those early days. God did the heavy lifting every step of the way. I had no idea what I was doing initially. God brought along just the right people at just the right time, showed us what the next steps needed to be, and gave us incredible favor. Someone with years of experience in the nonprofit sector told me not long ago that when we started, she gave us two years, tops. She thought we'd focused on too tiny a niche. Now she marvels at how wrong she was. 
Having served over a thousand victims so far, and seeing this same model established in other areas of the country, I finally understood those words uttered in the 1980s by a jet-lagged stranger from New Zealand. The Enslavery Tennessee staff, volunteers, and supporters have made this happen. I'm just thankful God used everything in me, the abuse as a child, an upbringing in urban slums, experiences with vulnerable girls and women in Nashville and around the world, to unleash so many people with a heart to give victims a chance to be survivors. And watching survivors' journeys of redemption has been one of my life's greatest privileges and joys. When we recorded the upcoming season, we asked a couple of survivors, Trish and Centoya, who've been personally impacted by Derry's work, to share what she means to them. So here's Trish and Centoya. I'm so grateful for your life's work and for the way that I and many other survivors benefited from the services that you envisioned and that the legacy that you leave behind that's going to help so many more women survivors and youth survivors. You really have such a truly beautiful spirit, and I just can't thank you enough. Love heals. I just wanted to thank you for all the years that you put into this work, um, for everything that you've done for girls, you know, like me. Um, I always think back to that campaign when, you know, you were over in slavery and you guys put out the What is 13 campaign and what that really meant to me. Um, So I thank you for that. Also, thank you for just, you know, on a personal level, for reaching out to me while I was incarcerated, for being so welcoming of me and my husband, Jamie, for inviting us to the banquet last year and just having that moment. It's just, you know, you've been so supportive and I just thank you for that. I wish you all the best. You've done such an incredible job here. Now it's time for you to just relax, just take care of dairy, have some time to yourself, sit on your porch and chill. Um, enjoy your retirement. God bless you. Hope we can stay in touch. Alongside dairy from day zero has been her husband, Bill. A legacy episode wouldn't be complete without his perspective. And this vital organization wouldn't have gotten off the ground so quickly without his support and creative contributions. Here's Bill. When Derry started this thing, this passionate pursuit, my first volunteer job was to be the anchor that kept her from running off the edge of the cliff. And when that didn't work, I I guess I threw her a rope. I soon also became the person who wrote, with Derry's input, just about every key communication a letter, a speech, a PowerPoint presentation, a handout, an award nomination, a press release. If it had words, it was my job to make it the best possible. And also if it had graphics. One frantic night, we needed a new logo as soon as possible. So I whipped up a temporary green and black logo that looked like sort of like a sign for a closed road. That temporary logo has been in use for eight years now. And because I've been a professional grant writer for the past 18 years, it was my job to apply for grants. The first big grant was for $45,000. That was more than our entire budget the year before. 
Oh, and then someone needed to keep track of the money. So I was the bookkeeper. This was all while doing the day job. And to be honest, I hate bookkeeping. But I did it for six years before there was a staff person to take it over. So Derry and I spent a lot of nights and weekends working together on all this stuff, sending written pieces back and forth between the office and the living room and revising. And when we were both sick and tired of this exhausting process, revising again until we both knew it was good. Every evening when we got home, Derry had much to tell about the day. And I loved being kept up to date on how this baby, this organization, was growing up. I also witnessed, over the years, the emotional and physical toll the work took on Derry. She gave everything. The toll wasn't just because of the work, but she gave her heart in more ways than one. Looking back, there are no regrets. We gave things that ultimately we couldn't keep, and we gained a wealth of satisfaction that God made so much happen and let us come along for the ride. Did I mention that I hate bookkeeping? I guess I already said that. Derry, we are ever grateful for you, for your gumption, for your grit, for your wisdom, and most especially for your chutzpah. Your bravery has been an example for the many your hands have touched as they work toward restoration and healing themselves. Derry, you've turned your own personal trauma story into personal triumph stories for so many people. You mentioned over 1,000 victims in this episode, and I venture that the Derry effect extends far beyond that. You were told two years tops, and the work you started has entered its 13th year. Two years ago, that's two years ago to the day I record this, you agreed to meet with me for 30 minutes to hear ideas about a podcast for In Slavery Tennessee. And within the first five minutes, you threw your full exuberant support behind those crazy ideas. And here we are today, celebrating you. We're forever grateful for telling us it happens here too, not just over there. You've given your heart and soul to trafficking survivors, and the team you've built will continue this important work. You've done well. Now enter the rest of your well-earned retirement. End Slavery Tennessee thanks the Jones Legacy Group for their continued support of someone like me. The executive producer of this special episode was Jerry Smith herself. Our production staff is Gregory Byerline, Stacey Elliott, and Marissa Brunell. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is our engineer. Original music is by Zach and Maggie White. I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson, and we'll be back in March with a brand new season of Someone Like Me. Thanks for listening. <laughs>